Hello, and welcome to the Innovation Quotient, a new podcast series where we examine innovation and discuss how it can fuel future progress. I'm Andrew Staples, Editorial Director of Initiatives at Economist Impact, an arm of the Economist Group which works with organisations to further their mission. This podcast is supported by Philip Morris International as part of an Economist Impact research programme called the Innovation Quotient, which examines how innovation could be fostered so as to drive socio-economic progress around the world. In this episode, we draw on a recent discussion in Washington, D.C., with actors from across the U.S. innovation ecosystem. We reviewed the U.S.'s overall performance and focused on two areas where the state scored relatively poorly, labor policy and social safety, and education priorities. My guests today are Lee Rainey, director of the Imagining the Digital Future Center at Elon University, and Eric Lightfoot, Area Vice President for Data Robot. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us today. And thank you also for joining us when we had our roundtable discussion in DC recently. Perhaps before we get into the conversation itself, I could invite you both to very briefly introduce yourselves and your relationship to the world of innovation. Eric, perhaps I could come to you first. Thanks for having me, Andy. I've been a subscriber to The Economist for uh, over a decade now. But uh, be that as it may, I, I am very interested in the innovation question. I, I've been in the tech world for over 10 years now. I consider myself a bit of an accidental tech leader. My background was that of international affairs and international economics. What I did in the tech world very early on is that I was working with so many different types of companies, uh, whether it's business, whether it's government, whether it's higher education. Um, but at the end of the day, it became a problem-solving conversation. And you know, another word for problem-solving more efficiently and better is innovation whether it be via people, via technology, via process change. And when I got contacted by you and your team, Andy, I, I got pretty excited. And when as I started looking at the findings that you had developed, it became a real opportunity to take a step back from the day-to-day and try to apply it to some more interesting research that uh, the Economist Impact team had brought to bear. So thank you for having me. Excellent. Thank you for that introduction. And Lee, if I could then come to you. Thanks, Andy. It's a real honor to be with you and Eric. I'm a longtime subscriber, first-time podcast guest, and my career divided very neatly into 25 years as a journalist, particularly covering American politics and then being a magazine editor. And I was so excited to get involved with the innovation quotient effort because one of the things that happened in my life at the magazine I was editing, uh, U.S. News and World Report, is we developed rankings ourselves. It's a really interesting and really admirable the way you, you all have gone after it. In the second half of my life, I moved over to the Pew Research Center where I studied internet and technology and its social impact on Americans. When I first got the job, I thought I was going to be studying media, but soon enough, it became really a, a study of innovation. And I had to master basically a whole new literature for me about how innovation emerges, how it propagates, how it moves through cultures and communities and things like that. Well, thank you very much. We started the, um, the round table in Washington, D.C. By, by sharing the overall findings uh, of the innovation quotient. We noted that the uh, United States came in at number four, but that the range between the best performing um, economy, Singapore, and number 10 within the index, that's Australia, was narrow as well. In other words, everybody's performing in quite a narrow band at that sort of top uh, level, the top 10 countries out of the 40. 
and also the best possible score you can get was pretty considerable. So a lot of work for even the best performing economies to uh, uh, to do in terms of improving their enabling environment for innovation for socioeconomic progress. We then focused in on three areas that sort of emerged from the research that we thought would be interesting to to dig into with a cross-section of that innovation ecosystem, including yourselves. And, and the first area that we looked at, um, we noted that the United States scored below average when it came to labor protection. And, and I think um, there was a very interesting discussion that we had around the relevance of this. Eric, maybe if I could come back to you and, and see what your recollection of that particular um, aspect of the conversation was. Yeah, no, this one is an interesting one. I think we had a really interesting conversation about the ease of um, hiring and firing quite specifically in the United States as compared with Britain that I have some experience with, but then contrasting that with the likes of Germany, for example, or Italy, where uh, it's much more difficult. And there were a group of people in the conversation who said, well, that's how innovation happens, the ability to quickly move and to quickly apply the right skills to the right problem is a, is a boon to a, a firm or an organization. Likewise, its innovation happens with risk-taking. And there are lots of examples of um, tech firms and people going off on their own and taking a risk where there is no job security. Now, the counter to that, you know, people are more willing to take risks if they feel safer. And I think the answer is always somewhere in between. You know, we're taking this, we, the conversation really was focused on how does the firm innovate best with human resource in this conversation. And the switch to that is how do employees or workers get the most out of their skills and apply them to best effect in a, an ecosystem like this? So I work at DataRobot. It's a end-to-end -end AI platform company uh, that helps the process of actually building and driving into production and then monitoring models for prediction. And we have, like many of our peers across the technology space and outside, had to do pretty significant layoffs to get to a better uh, margin and operating rhythm going forward. It's been very tough for everyone involved, but most importantly, it's been tough for the people who've been affected by these. The example of tech is often lauded because, you know, all those great technologies that were built in someone's garage and the risk that they were willing to take. And that proves that innovation comes from the struggle and the risk and the lack of security. But, but I disagree with that because you see in San Francisco, for example, or Seattle in the 90s, yeah, you could work from your garage, but there were also so many other technology jobs around you that even if you failed, you'd be all right. There was funding in place. There were other organizations for which your high skills could be applied. And that's the other thing. The conversation was very focused on high skill labor, not necessarily lower skill or blue collar labor where there's less fungibility in, uh, in skills. So, you know, my view is that it's both and. I'm not trying to make this a, a safety net conversation because it's not necessarily government that can support, but how do we create more of a safety net that you're willing to take your risks because you feel safe, but you're also willing to step out and do something different? Lee, perhaps if I could come to you on this, because before your current roles, you noted in the introduction, you also covered US politics, and it seemed to be quite a politicized debate around getting that balance right between encouraging um, risk-taking and a supportive environment. Um, Eric mentioned there's a sort of safety net that helps facilitate the movement of people and therefore skills and ideas as well. I wonder if we could get your comment on that. 
Sure. The, the United States circumstance um, with labor flexibility, labor law itself, is informed by the federalist structure of our system of government. There are 50 different sets of labor laws because labor policy uh, and labor regulation is left to the states in most cases rather than to the federal government. For workers, it's sometimes a, an encouragement to move to different places. But in a lot of cases, it just sows confusion in the, in the broader marketplace, particularly for big firms or particularly in circumstances where situations uh, cross over borders really easily. And so there, there's the big tension in the United States is always how much uniformity would be good for any outcome that you want, including innovation. And um, you know the firms that are certainly across states and, and multinational are enormously frustrated by the fact that they have to obey one set of laws in Illinois and another set of laws in California and yet another set of laws in Florida. The other thing that composition of labor itself is vastly being innovated around and being innovated by uh, by individual workers. Just take a, an example of a nurse. As technology has improved, as hospital systems have changed, as the structure of medical labor markets has changed, nurses are doing vastly more things now than they used to do. And so there's a fluidity to the labor situation that's almost baked into the process, partly by technology, partly just by other changes in the culture. And one of the things I like about the innovation quotient is that you're sort of taking account of that and trying to understand how upskilling and changing professions even sometimes makes a lot of sense. And we might get into that more specifically in the education part of the equation. But the, the other, another dimension to this, of course, is new kinds of jobs like the gig economy. It's not very big, but it's enormously important for the way that uh, labor is being defined, people's relationships to firms is being defined and the way people's relationship to customers is being defined. And so th there are big debates in the United States. There are propositions in some states about whether gig workers ought to be considered employees of the apps that enable them to meet their customers or whether they should be considered independent contractors. And it's going to take a, a good long while to sort that out state by state in the United States. If I could just take you back to that point there around the differences between the states. Do you feel that that flexibility at the state level, is that creating the conducive environment for innovation or is it hindering it? The, the way that people have described the federal structure in the United States is that the states are laboratories, not only of democracy, but of economic opportunity and economic rulemaking and, and things like that. And so not only do hubs like Silicon Valley that Eric was referring to, to create their own sort of circumstances because of the you know the local universities and the and the norms and the culture that emerge from them. But different states are sort of have different rules and it, it, even related to like industrial policy kinds of things. Some states are highly encouraging of trying to build tech hubs because they see how it works so well in other states. Other states want no part of that. They think that, you know, basically laissez-faire, let everyone come and figure it out for themselves is the right way to do it. And so the overall sort of safety net environment, the level of national policy is a big factor as you consider innovation. It is a hindrance more than not, I would say. Most, most of the evidence is that people stay in place too long, that companies don't necessarily change as rapidly as they might if they had the chance to make sure that their employees would be well cared for or that there was some other way that they could be moved off to more productive places or moved off to just off the payroll kind of thing. So I, that's a big, big debate in the United States. Thanks very much for that. Let's move on because the issue of education has been raised a couple of times. And 
One of the other points that emerged out of the research at the country level for the states was the cost of education, particularly thinking about tertiary education here. And if we're thinking about high skills and um, high value-added service-based economy, tertiary education is critical to that. And Eric, I'm I'm going to come to you on this as well, because you're in tech and you've worked with a lot of um, uh, innovative companies and startups related to seed and venture capital and so on. Um, Do you see that the cost of of tertiary education in the States is hindering innovation? In in other words, we're not getting enough people through the education system because of the prohibitive cost of it. Um, No, is the short answer to that. I don't see that. I see a different problem. So first things first, my experience is not going to be indicative of the economy at the whole. Now, that said, Basically, everyone I've worked with has had a higher education. So what I see, and it's going to go right back to what we had been talking about, I don't see an issue of a dearth of candidates, of qualified candidates. I see more than enough qualified candidates. But I am having conversations about debt way more. Um, Again, if we think about healthcare and we think about visas as being the top two reasons why you're terrified of losing your job, paying down your student debt is probably a pretty damn close third. And that becomes the issue. There's a study done by the New York Times relatively recently where they did a they did a comparison. There's still no question that having a higher education degree gets you a higher salary than if you don't have a higher education degree. The catch is that if you look at it net over the course of your career, you're not much better off net by having a higher education degree in the United States, just from an earnings perspective your ability to you know, critically think, your ability to learn and write and all that other stuff is hugely important. But if you just look at earnings, there are serious questions now about whether or not a higher education degree is worth it over the long term, the way that it was you know, taken as gospel as being yes up until now. Lee, it'd be good to hear from you. And also on the point that did come up in, in the conversations, you mentioned the, um, the rankings, how involved you've been with that earlier in, in your career. And, and there was another... Um, one of the other guests was a, a professor at university who was um, suggesting that because of, or partly because of rankings, that the, the focus on providing excellent facilities and dorms and, uh, and all the rest of it had driven up the cost of education. And um, I think you put your hands up uh, for that one a little bit, but <laughs> let me take you back to that point. Sure. The, the backdrop to this conversation is the amazing change in public opinion now about the value of a college degree. The premium has gone down on that as the cost of higher education has risen. The other coincident phenomenon in the culture is that starting in around 2017-18, for the first time in Pew surveys, um, a majority of Republicans and, and a significant number of Democrats were saying that the role that colleges played in the culture was not a good one. And that's part of the larger conversation about polarization and about culture wars in the United States. But there's a sense that college doesn't mean what it used to mean. And the final sort of piece of the puzzle, at least from the worker side of it, is that when we've asked Americans about their jobs, a lot of them say, I didn't need a college degree to do this. There are other sort of social benefits, citizenship and civic benefits that a college education conveys. Well-rounded people are going to be at an increasing premium in the age of AI, generative AI. But the fact of the matter is that we're using a college degree as a marker for stuff that it doesn't necessarily have to be connected to. The fact of the matter, though, is I think it's right for the innovation quotient to highlight this because it's sort of a signal 
about life aspirations. Colleges will reinvent themselves and they need reinventing uh, to be much more focused on things like lifelong learning rather than picking up particular skills and, and things like that and figuring out how to have a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset. But the fact of the matter is that if you've taken the time to go to college, it shows a level of hustle and grit and determination and is signaling about other aspects of your character that is appealing and attractive to employers. Um, before rankings at U.S. News were created, every college could use its own definition of who's a student. Every college could use its own definition of what's a graduation rate and how many resources are applied to students and what classroom size is. So you had this you know, Wild West environment where everybody was promoting themselves we're using the same language, but very different definitions of those terms. So imposing some order on that chaos was a really virtuous thing. And the aspiration at USU's was to help people figure out where should I be applying to school? What's the reasonable set of places that make sense to me? And soon enough, boards of trustees and other places began to sort of hire college presidents and provosts saying, if you don't raise our, our ranking place by 10 points, you're gone. And so it became now a state of nature at the college level for competing for rankings. And of course, the other big mega trend in the culture now is there are fewer people of college age, in part because people didn't have babies after 2008 Great Recession. But to focus on, on the skills and the reasons why people go to university. And again, if we're thinking at that sort of broader level about, you know, the skills that people need to be able to thrive and, and contribute to an innovative economy or an economy that's based on, on innovation... Are we getting it right at the moment? So if we put that sort of future skills focus in the context of uh, rapid application of artificial intelligence, where are we with higher education uh, in the States and what needs to change? Lee, maybe I could stay with you on that one. Colleges are not the most rapidly innovative agents of change in the broad culture. So colleges are struggling uh, with the very questions you're raising. And AI is sort of making the skill set question, top of mind, front and center kind of questions. And there, there are sort of innovations at the campus level and even sometimes at the classroom level that have not necessarily been enshrined in the curriculum and the accreditation process. So there's a lot of innovation that probably needs to happen and will happen in colleges over time. Right now, the sort of premium that AI puts on softer skills is coming much more clearly into focus. People who can do complex communication People who can see patterns that are intuitive rather than just sort of uh, algorithmically generated. People who can do persuasion. People who can live in messiness. People who can do a hierarchical decision-making that in involves many, many points of, of sort of analysis to, to make the final decision. That's how humans sort of stand out and apart from AI, at least in the way that it's heading now. And who knows whether we're going to be overtaken even on those kind of things eventually as a, as a species. But so the whole idea of lifelong learning, the whole idea of upskilling and reinventing yourself, the whole idea of even taking stock, where do I stand? Where does my business stand and where does my industry likely stand in the, in the light of all of this stuff? I think it's an open question about how quickly they'll innovate to that and how quickly they will reinvent themselves. I guess the final thing that is a sort of an open field is micro-credentialing. You know, there are going to be certain skills that appeal to Eric, but his employees are going to walk in the door with. And they might not be the same skills that were required five years ago or five years hence. But just knowing that someone's sort of mastered them at the moment and is prepared and has you know, thought things through to, to be on top of the skills that are needed and gotten a credential for it, I think micro-credentialing is a, is a big piece of whatever education systems do to adjust to the AI future. But Eric, let me come to you then. Do you have 
concerns that the skills that people have at the moment, their ability to interact with the technology and to bring innovative ideas into fruition um, is in any way challenged? Or actually, are you quite sanguine about the um, the skills uh, force that we have at the moment? I continue to be quite impressed with the caliber of people coming up. The ability to ask the right questions is going to become more and more important. And I think that that is where tertiary education really kind of will will prove itself to be a difference maker going into the future. Because when you're forced to sit in a room with people that you didn't grow up in the same zip code with, and it forces you to think differently. So in, in my world, in go-to-market functions, you're absolutely looking for problem-solving skills, critical thinking, and you you see that come out of university systems. And, and to Lee's point about micro-credentialing, I mean, the amount of new majors they have today than when I was in uh, university. And I, I mean, there are just so many more options now. I mean, we we now literally have a program that we will work with. It's out of a business school and it is sales. That was never an option. No one went to school for sales back in the day. So there are there are these innovations within the university system themselves as they think to themselves, how can we apply our credentialing system, uh, to use Lee's word, which I agree with, um, to the real world? So Listen, university helps. It really does. And one other point on the social skills point, there's a great Economist article from a few weeks ago that talked about this, that managers are exhausted right now. And it used to be that you would go out and hire five people that look just like you, went to the same schools that you did and had the same life experiences that you did. And you might not get the best outcomes. And there's a lot of research to suggest you don't when you just hire yourself over and over again. But as a manager, it's a lot easier. Sorry, I'd have to whisper that. It's a lot easier when you know exactly what someone's experience is, is, and it's yours. The empathy part of your brain doesn't really have to turn on because you just look in the mirror and you do your job. So the emotional quotient become more important going forward. Well, thank you for that. I'd like to turn our thoughts to a final question I'd pose to, to both of you. So mentioned at the outset, um, the US overall came in at number four, in our index, that's four out of the 40 countries that we examined. And so it's doing it's doing pretty good. What could it be doing better? What one thing would, would help push innovation uh, and particularly innovation for socioeconomic progress? Lee, if I would come to you and, uh, and, and get your final thoughts on that. So one of the great virtues that you have brought to the conversation, well, there are two virtues. One is you've identified the right thing in the right way. And the second is that you've pushed conversations about innovation away from where they used to be, which is almost exclusively focusing on patents. But the big finding was the delta between the highest performers and sort of the ideal version of what an innovation culture ought to look like. I think we can quibble about the way that you've allocated the criteria and things like that. But I think the the sort of larger point that pops from the data is the higher education piece is, is a part of it, specifically in the ways that you're calling out how Diversity in all of its glory, is, as Eric was saying, is something to be mastered. And so you, I, my guess without seeing the internals of the data is that that's, you know, solving that or, or enabling that in a richer way will help narrow the gap between the highest performers and the ideal performance. The other thing that, in, at least in the United States, um, is this sort of embedded in a variety of the variables you considered. It's just basically social and institutional trust. It's the urgent thing in our culture now because we're not going to solve problems and we're certainly not going to close the delta with everybody 
uh, thinking that the other side is inhuman, unworthy. There clearly is a call in your data for public-private partnerships, for better sense of regulation and sort of uh, the safety net that we've both described and things like that. We won't get that done without a much more um, cooperative, collaborative, uh, less toxic political system. Um, and there, the other thing that um, is the American part of the story in particular, it relates to sort of the thing I was referring to before about hustle. Yep, it's a great thing and it leads to lots of innovation and it's a character trait that Americans celebrate, God knows. But I think we're killing ourselves in many cases with the amount of work we're doing, the vacations we don't take, the ways in which we are neglecting our families and our communities and our civic life and stuff like that. I, I think there's really interesting psychology work done on the fact that the best ideas come to people when they think their minds are at rest. And the other great story is that the best ideas come when people are working together. So all of that is bound up in the same thing I'm describing. Well, thank you very much. The headline finding from our research addresses the important collaboration. And in one of the earlier podcasts, we did focus in on the need for trust and for innovation to be people-centric, to be very much rooted in, in the needs of societies and, in, and individuals. And in doing so, you build that trust across the ecosystem. And Eric, in, in just the last um, few uh, couple of minutes that we've got, um, the same question. What one thing would you suggest that um, policymakers, regulators, everybody involved in innovation in the US could be doing a little bit better? For me, I think it's the interaction effects. I think a lot of time, business says that they can do it all by themselves. And higher education says we're the be-all, end-all. And government says it's all about us. And civil society says we just have to do it in our communities, right? And the fact of the matter is, is it, it's the interaction effects with all of these groups, but the individual to the group, to the institution that needs to get better. And I think the United States, for all the, all the reasons that Lee has called out, is um, an inflection point slash an interesting historical pivot point that it needs to figure out. And that's down to all of us. I'm on the whole optimistic. Um, what I would like to see and the area that I'd like to see is better interactions between the individual, the group, uh, public sector, private sector. And to Lee's point, just a, a little bit more grace in dealing with people that are not part of your specific group, whether it's at the individual level or the community level or the business level or the public sector level. Thank you for taking us through some of the things that we discussed at the round table, but also bringing in some new ideas and, um, and issues for us to grapple with. Thank you for listening to Innovation Quotient. For more information about the Innovation Quotient, please visit economistimpact.com forward slash innovation hyphen quotient.